I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash. I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy.
right, here we are. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Women's Magazine here on MutinyRadio.fm. We're in the Mission District of San Francisco. It is a rainy day, um, but we need it. We need the rain, right, Natasha? That we do. That we do. I want to I make sure I have some... Um, I'm picking up your voice well enough over there. So uh, why don't you just say hello and happy Friday to everybody. Hello and happy Friday. All right. Perfect. I found your microphone. Uh, We are a community radio station here in the Mission District. And, um, you know, we make things work as as they come and as they go. So uh, welcome to Women's Magazine. Thank you so much for tuning in this Friday. It is February 8th. 2019. And I'm really excited today. uh, My guest here, Natasha Singh. Uh, Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And um, I met Natasha at the Women's March in San Francisco just a couple weeks ago. And um, she was one of the speakers at the rally. So let me introduce you and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into some some conversation here. So Natasha Singh is a writer and an educational consultant addressing consent, healthy relationships, porn literacy, and mindful masculinity with schools, parents, and students. She also works closely with Asha Rising um, to help women in Calcutta, India, uh, Freedom Forward, which is working with youth here in the Bay Area, I believe, and also the Center for Domestic Peace, uh, which is in Marin County here, um, working to end domestic violence. And uh, her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, several anthologies. And so welcome to Women's Magazine. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's it's so nice to have you here. Um, So, so much of your work... um, shows that you're really working to help facilitate healing from trauma, promote healthy relationships with oneself, with intimate partners, with families, communities. So what started you down this path? Ah, great question. Um, How much time do you have? Um, (laughs) (laughs) We've got the better part of an hour. So wherever we wander in this conversation, uh, we'll we'll be happy to do. Sure. Um, I think... From as you know, as far back as I can remember, I've always been um, liberation has always mattered to me, and justice has always mattered to me. And when I think about the primary influences, um, my primary influences, I would say, uh, you know, I knew when I was very young, I, I learned that my mother was uh, tricked into her arranged marriage with my father. And, um, and when she talked about her childhood, she would talk about, you know, growing up in a family where her sisters were a veil and had child marriages. And she really fought for her education and became a teacher and loved her life. And um, and then she unwittingly, you know, she was tricked into her marriage with my father and brought to Canada, where she, um, where my parents settled in the this really tiny town in the heart of the Canadian Rockies. And when I learned that, and I learned that very young, um, I think it really um, upset me. And I found myself sitting as a young person with lots of questions about choice, about women's mobility, about freedom, about liberation, um, about resilience, um, and how people make a life even within Confines, um, and as I got older, um, I know when I wanted to go out and explore the world, my parents, and particularly my father, responded with a lot of violence um, and a lot of shaming. And so, um, so I was very uh, upset about that as well. And I think had this 
sense of principled outrage. Um, it really mattered to me that um, I could have a freedom, free, experience freedom and a sense of justice, but that it mattered to me that everybody else could as well. Um, and so I brought that with me into my teaching and into my all my practices, really, that I and all my work with people and communities. Um, those ethics and values I carry with me all the time. And so when I was teaching young people, um, you know, I've always had a, a place to focus on voice and on um, encouraging young people to talk about their experiences and write about their experiences. Um, and there was a class, and I used to teach English literature, and there was a class that I offered in my very last year of teaching called Gender, Power, and Hope. Mm. And when I offered that class, I thought it was really cutting edge, and it was to 11th and 12th graders, and there was... Um, a small component of that class where we devoted to media and we ended up talking about media and what's, what's on the media landscape and how young people are developing their ideas about their body, about beauty, about power, about gender and intimacy. And, you know, during that part of class, we also ended up talking about pornography um, as one of the many topics. And I found that as I opened up the space to talk to young people about these issues, um, a lot of young people began talking about not so great experiences with unhealthy relationships. Um, and I remember there was a component of the class where um, some of the boys who were, you know, older students took me aside and they said, you know, um, the part of the class where you talked about pornography, that was riveting. Um, <laughs> and I just wish someone had been having that conversation with us in the sixth grade. And I said, what? Oh, wow. um, and I was floored by that. And that's and I began discovering that most most of the kids I was working with had also been getting their primary source of sex education from pornography in the media landscape. And it occurred to me then that as a literature teacher, I and f schools in general were failing young people um, because young people are not going to books anymore um, to make meaning of the world um, or to make meaning of, of sex and intimacy, body, beauty, all of those things are actually going to the media landscape. So my mission really is to equip t um, kids with tools to navigate that landscape and um, read it and become literate, um, but also become really literate about sexuality and intimacy so they can have just and amazing healthy relationships. That's uh, such a fantastic goal and I, I think that it really is telling um, to have those students respond in that way. Yeah. So now as um, a consultant, an edu mm -hmm. sexual literacy consultant, you go into schools and into communities um, and there's, I, I feel like what you're talking about is that sex education seems kind of limited. So in terms of the, the structural, you know, and in, instructional um, pedagogical, you know, way of learning about it in school, how are students learning about it in school traditionally these days? I mean, I know I grew up here and I actually went to private school. I went to a Catholic school. So we did start sex education in the fifth grade, but it was called family life. And, uh, you know, it's framed in certain ways. Um, but, I, you know, I, had a you know a pretty formidable sex education, um, but but what do you see in schools and where are the gaps that you see? That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, it's uneven across this country, which means that you know I mean thirteen states mandate. If, well, 13 states insist that sex education doesn't have to be medically accurate. Um, three states actually mandate that if you're going to talk about sexual orientation, it has to be in only negative terms. Um, and there's so many other um, 
uh, absurd kinds of approaches that, and I use the word absurd deliberately because um, even we know with abstinence-only education, um, that hasn't worked. It's failed even though we've poured millions and millions of dollars into those kinds of programs. What concerns me is that Number one, the unevenness or lack of uniformity means that even if, as you said, you had a formidable sex education, which is music to my ears because most people don't say that when they look back um, on their sex education experience, but even if you have had that, it would be very, and if you, even if you're growing up in California and you have um, good sex education, it's very likely that by the time you get to university, you will encounter people who have not, which means you'll encounter a tremendous amount of ignorance um, and misinformation, and that puts all young people at risk. And also, I mean, when we look at our um, sex education in this country, I think it's really important to look at sexual health outcomes because we do tend to get very polarized when we're talking about sex ed. There are lots of... Um, uh, you have the you know religious groups, you have all kinds of people who weigh in heavily, but I think to just it's important to also put that aside for a moment and really examine data and look at sexual health outcomes. And we, among developing nations, have um, some of the worst sexual health outcomes um, uh, among developing countries. So we have some of the highest uh, rates of STIs. I think teen adolescents in the U.S. account for one quarter of the population, but account for 50% of all new STIs. We have wow. some of the highest rates of teen pregnancies. Um, and we and students also report that they're not learning enough about the emotional side of sex. And the Netherlands, for instance, is doing it so much better than we are. And teens report having um, pretty, you know, much better um, sexual encounters for their first time than U.S. teens. Um, so there's something that we can learn from uh, other countries that are doing it well that have better outcomes than, than we do. And, and can you give us a, kind of a, a picture of what that might be an example of what it means to teach more the emotional side? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think it's very important. I know in the Netherlands they start um, at age four um, in kindergarten. And when I share that information. I teach classes to parents, for instance, on how to talk to young people about sexual ethics and sex and intimacy. And when I share that information with parents or even with students that I work with, they'll be shocked. And they're shocked because they assume that that means that you're taking a bunch of four-year-olds and talking about the act. Um, and we tend to have a very limited view and perception of sex and intimacy. And the truth of it is, as we all know, we bring our whole beings um, to sexual experiences and so much in forms our ideas and perceptions of sexual intimacy. And so um, a way to talk about sex is to talk about communication, is to talk about consent, is to talk about the various range of feelings you can have. It's to talk about how to navigate um, difficult conversations, how to self-advocate, how to have empathy. Um, those are really important conversations that need to be included. Um, and when you put sex ed only in the hands of biology teachers and gym teachers as if they have some special knowledge um, about sex and sexual intimacy that nobody else has, I think it sends a message that sex is just about parts and functions and anatomy um, and unwanted pregnancies and unwanted STIs. And it's not. It's so much more than that. We do have to talk about pleasure. We have to talk about all these other components and have a much more holistic picture of sex. And I think kids really welcome that. Um, and it's a transformation I'm, I'm really hoping that we'll see and I'm happy to be a part of as an educator. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, and kind of a reflection of, you know, my previous statement, uh, certainly I 
was able to get you know a more advanced uh, and more critical kind of um, sex education as a university student so certainly you know prior to university it was you know kind of you know thorough in a sense but yeah very focused on uh you know parts and functions and um intercourse yeah as being kind of the like what is sex um you know other things you know being discussed oral sex things like that um nobody talked about anal sex in any of my classes (laughs) uh prior to university you know and so um you know, seeing those limitations, even within, you know, people who are certainly just, you know, making an effort to, to let people know um, about consequences and yeah. things like that. And, um, but certainly, you know, the whole, basically all of the, um, you know, prior to my university kind of upper division course, it, the, there was no real, you know, contextual, you know, thing about the intimacy part or, um, it was, you know, no means no. Okay. Get it. Got it. Good. And then let's move on. Um, so I really appreciate that you're bringing this into communities. Um, and I, I really, I feel like I could talk about sex education all day, but, um, <laughs> what is, cause I'm, I really am passionate about it. Um, so what, what, what is some advice or that you give to students or to young people or to parents in order to help facilitate some of these conversations that can be really difficult? Um, because I feel like there is a big divide between parents and children when it comes to the topic of sex often. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important to talk about sexual ethics. Um, if you work with um, parents or students, and I usually will start a, a any sort of discussion like this, I'll say, do you think, if I'm talking to parents, do you think your children know what your ethics are around your academic expectations? And the parents will nod, absolutely. Do you think that your kids know your ethics around, you know, um, how you should behave in your family? Yes, absolutely. And if you ask kids the same thing, you know, the same questions, they'll say, absolutely. They're, they're very aware of their parents' hopes, expectations, and ethics around academics, around achievement, around success. Um, but if you ask parents and kids, um, do kids... Or, you know, do your family, does your family talk about sexual ethics or just your ethics in terms of relationships? Um, Mostly I'll get no's. um, And nobody's, it seems to me that we don't, we aren't talking about um, sexual ethics or ethics in the sexual arena. So I think that that's a really important place to start. Um, And I think it's it's helpful for parents and kids to begin to develop and articulate some of their ethics around sex and sexuality. So do you think, for instance, that that there should be, you know, sex should be developmentally appropriate? Do you think that there should be mutual reciprocity um, or mutual pleasure or reciprocity or fairness? Um, but I think when you can establish that, to my mind, if you have a strong core that way, you can make intelligent choices and decisions and you can have certain perceptions that are always rooted in those ethics. And I think we need to start there first. Well, I, I applaud that, um, and I, I know that it's, um, you know, I feel like the time, it, it, we've been so so much kind of hanging out in the dark of sex education for, for so long um, that these these issues are, you know, especially, um, you know, relevant and, and in, in, in these days and age, um, you know, we see young people who have, you know, a much more developed understanding of the you know the variety of sexual identities or gender identities um, than a lot of adults do. So, uh, 
I mean, where, where are you, you were talking a bit about how kids aren't going to the books. Um, so how are they getting their information and what are some of the pitfalls out there? Um, well, kids are many kids are turning to um, pornography as a primary source of um, sex education, and I think in the absence of meaningful conversations and comprehensive conversations about sexuality, um, you know, pornography becomes a de facto source of sex education, and that is concerning because um, with a lot of mainstream pornography, uh, it may not teach young people about consent, about safe sex, about communication, about female pleasure, um, and it tends to it can reduce um, you know brown and black bodies to you know predatory to stereotypes. I mean, there's that kind of stuff, and that's concerning. And I think. Um, I don't recommend that parents, for instance, run to kids and say, oh, are you watching porn? You shouldn't be watching porn. <laughs> it's not really about that. It's about teaching people to become more critical and discerning consumers and to really think about you know, what narratives and what stories and values and ethics do I want to imbibe when I'm forming my sexual foundation or my sexual template. Um, and so I think it's, it's, um, it's really important, one, to talk about pornography though because oftentimes um, the parents I know so many parents who just don't want to even consider that that's um, a possibility and people tend to get quite concerned about intentional exposure but the truth of it is there's a lot more unintentional exposure mm. um, and most of the fifth or sixth graders I work with have been have encountered um, sexually explicit content online and if you don't have conversations with parents and those doorways are not open between parents and kids kids just sit in shame and fear arousal secrecy um, and it doesn't need to be that way we can have very open conversations but I think my work is in is um, in supporting the agency of young people so that they can make choices um, for themselves um, and where they're, they're considered choices. Um, and so they play an active role in how they want to grow their minds and their, their selves as sexual beings. And so you go uh, to schools and parents groups and community groups. So your website is sexliteded.com. Uh, Am I saying that correctly? That's right. Se yeah, sexliteded.com. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And do you primarily stay here in the Bay Area, or are you, have you? Um, what's I've also worked with East Coast schools as well, some private schools on the East Coast. Um, it, but my work is is uh, mainly focused in the Bay Area. And and one quick thing I'd I'd like to add, just for any parents who are listening out there, one of the most um, typical responses I hear from parents uh, is that they'll say, we don't want to talk about sex or sexuality because my child is so young or my child is so innocent. Um, and I, I really push back against that because number one, um, and there's almost this belief that if you talk about these issues that kids will run off and start having sex. Um, you know, we... It, when we talk about fire safety, it doesn't result in children running off and setting fires. It just results in children making more informed choices and decisions. Um, so that's a fallacy. And oftentimes parents forget that even if children are not engaging sexually and teens are not engaging sexually, they're still forming ideas about gender, about relationships, about what's healthy and unhealthy, um, and power and how to communicate. And those conversations should start as soon as possible. That's a very good point. Um, Thank and, you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was 
kind of musing the other day about, you know, how we often, you know, when you have, when they're young children, you know, two year olds, three year olds, Mm -hmm. what do we, what, what do they get become obsessed with sometimes? Dinosaurs, you know, why are we, why is that such an important thing to teach, you know, three-year-old humans about, you know, five million, ten million-year-old, <laughs> d- you know, dead an- animals? I don't know. It, you know, I, it just struck me as very strange. And it's like, let. But so to your point, let's bring things that are relevant to, <laughs> to someone's life into their, you know, awareness when they're as young as possible. You um, got it. <laughs> you know, yeah. wear friendship t-shirts. I don't know why the T-Rex is so appealing. Um, <laughs> but it, it, along the same lines of um, healthy relationships, dealing with healthy relationships, and uh, perhaps in response to some of your personal experiences, I know you also do a lot of work with the Center for Domestic Peace yeah. here in Marin. Um, so I believe they, so they're, they're an organization uh, work trying to work to end t- domestic violence, mm-hmm. um, offering support on many different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was looking at their website, and there was a really devastating statistic from 2010 in Marin County that um, domestic violence w- what has been Marin County's number one violent crime for more than 20 years. Um, and I think that here, if you're here in the Bay Area, you kind of think of Marin as this kind of magical place where, um, you know, <laughs> people who can afford to live here live there. Maybe they have a boat. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it, it's it's an affluent, generally affluent, um, mostly affluent area. Um, but to, to think that um, domestic violence is so prevalent there um, is, I think, shocking uh, to or would be shocking to a lot of people. It was shocking to me. And I'm from the Bay Area here. Um, also, the you know, the Trump administration just quietly back in April kind of redefined what domestic violence includes, um, which used to include more components of abuse, um, like, you know, psychological abuse and, and, and things like that. Um, so we're kind of in this era of uh, where we're, domestic violence is still a very big um, problem uh, in our country, in our culture. So uh, can you tell us about your work there at the Center for Domestic Peace? Sure. Um, well, I co-chair the board of Center for Domestic Peace, and it's an organization that's about 42 years old. Um, and to your point about the you know, domestic violence being the number one reported crime. We the DA's office actually sees about 800, on average, about 800 cases a year of DV. But considering that only one in four cases are reported, mm-hmm. um, we suspect that those numbers are much higher. Um, and we do provide a lot of, of services. Um, we have bilingual hotlines, uh, shelter, transitional housing. Um, we had, I think, nearly five, over 5,000 calls, or close to 5,000 calls on our hotlines alone last year. Um, we've housed 435 women and children in our shelters in the last year alone, and we have um, an economic um, empowerment program, um, and we offer also programs to women and men to unlearn their violence, and those programs are called Mankind and Womenkind. Mm. And I'm saying all this because domestic violence really does require a multi-pronged approach, and our approach is not to just... Um, focus on crisis management, but to really also create a sense of community ownership so that we can really transform um, the issue and, and end the issue. But it takes everybody. Everybody has a stake on it in, in this in this conversation and in ending domestic violence. And we also train kids to become ambassadors at mm. their schools and, and make it cool to talk about healthy and unhealthy relationships. Um, so we do a lot of that kind of work and have been doing that for a long time. And 
we are, like you, concerned um, about the Trump administration's recent um, recent move uh, to characterize um, domestic violence, uh, you know, as only being harms, right? That that. Uh, will either be a felony or a misdemeanor crime, and only those things can be called domestic violence. And this movement to end domestic violence against women and girls has really worked so long and so hard to expand the definition of domestic violence to include um, not only physical violence, but emotional violence, um, to really call out, you know, patterns of, you know, abuse of power, um, the deliberateness of that, uh, financial abuse, um, psychological abuse, stalking. I mean, it's so, there's so many ways to be abusive. And when you transform language the way that um, has just happened now, you really, I think set some dangerous precedents, and I know right now it's too early to tell what the implications of that um, could be. But I, I, um, you know, I, I think that some of those implications could mean that the 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 Office of Violence Against Women, uh, which are, you know kind of engages in a broad range of activities, um, it could mean that um, funding or resources only go to um, victims of a violent crime. But that means all the other victims of all these other forms of abuse may go unnoticed, unseen. Um, they've also the Trump administration has also done that with um, uh, sexual violence has redefined that as well. Um, so I think we all know that language is power. And um, this is not just an issue of semantics, um, because if we think about um, the Office on Violence Against Women, they also offer training programs and they have an educational component. They design curriculum. If that um, definition of DV becomes so minimal like that, that means people may assume then that domestic violence is only that definition, that very limited definition. So that essentially vanishes and invisibilizes people's varied experiences of violence. Um, and that's that's very, very worrying. And we should all be concerned and remain vigilant about that. Are you aware of any, um, are, are you aware of um, any efforts uh, of the pushback against these redefinitions? I don't know if you, I'm not. So this is kind of a throwing out there question um, because I, I mean, I've heard a lot about this happening, but not necessarily know, wh- you know, where that is in the process of um, people pushing back against it or trying to get those definitions kind of re- reopened or reexamined. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't. Um I think people are. I don't know of any any sort of um, uh, pushback or shows of, of pushback. I do think that people are very aware. I mean, I know in the community that I'm in, everybody sent around <laughs> articles and you know that those news blasts about this. So people, I think, are waiting mm-hmm. to see and are just keeping an eye out to see if tra- translating that language also translates into diminished funding, um, diminished resources for people. And we're very aware of of. Language. Um, everybody in this movement is aware of the power of language. So um, we're we're concerned, but we're waiting and seeing. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> I know we're in some pretty heady, heady, heavy t- days uh, in in this country. Um, but with the women's movement and the women's march, um, 
you know, I feel like there's, there's so much energy, uh, that's, that's working yeah. towards the good. So I don't want people out there to be totally freaked out. You know, it's, there's <laughs> a lot of good happening. And if you were here, if you were at, attended any of the women's marches and the one here in San Francisco, we we're talking about, talk about that day a little bit for you. Cause that rally that was, that, that we were there for, um, I, I found to be really inspiring, but you were one of the speakers. So what was that like for you? You know, it's um, it's funny because people, uh, friends of mine, kept saying, "Are you nervous?" Um, you know, there are thousands of people here, and I, for some reason, um, that's very clear to me now. But at the time, I it, I didn't feel nervous certainly at all. I think, if anything, I felt so buoyant and so uplifted, um, and I swear, I just I felt like I was being carried by this this current. And I think um, to be in that space when there are so many women and people who support women's rights when you're inside that space it feels like miracles and magic uh, can happen and so um, to that point it, you know for me it was incredible and I felt like such an honor to just be able to be in that space um, to speak out in that space um, and to just be with speaking with so many other people because everybody who showed up there whether they were had a mic in their hands or not they were speaking um, and that experience of being with and speaking with um, is truly transformative so it was it was such a gift so I, just to kind of continue with some of your work um, because you know you really are helping to to give voice uh, to, to people, um, give women a voice, give youth a voice. Um, tell me about this organization, um, Freedom Forward, and what you're ex- why you're excited about the work there. Yeah, um, Freedom Forward um, is, uh, is now three years old, um, and it is... Um, when when I and I'm, I play the role of um, advisor and with a number of really extraordinary people doing work um, in this arena, and I I've been super excited about it because I know when Freedom Forward first um, started, uh, their focus was to end commercial sexual exploitation of youth, and over in just three years, they have managed to almost become like an umbrella organization, and not necessarily to duplicate or replicate the work that's the great work that's already being done and has been done in the Bay Area or San Francisco on this issue, but to really um, find spaces where people could come together and collaborate. Um, They've been so great about bringing youth in to define their mission and their work, and they've hired youth and consulted youth. Um, And so their focus and their language is actually even shifting now because they understand that... um, you know, the issue is not just ending commercial sexual exploitation. You really have to look at all the various pieces that contribute to a young person's vulnerability. Um, and so they're really stepping back to look at all these various organizations and all these various pieces and, and that um, play a significant role in the pathway to being um, uh, a young person who is uh, a survivor of sexual exploitation. Um, so they work with the foster care system. They work with law enforcement. They work with you know. So so they have they have all of these forged all these relationships. Um, and I'm particularly excited about their their recent campaign that they launched, um, which I think. Uh, I think you know a little bit about as well, uh, or sort of <laughs> the Jasmine Strong. 
Oh, right. Jasmine yeah. Strong. Yeah. She, so she's a superhero. Superhero. Uh-huh. Right. So, um, yeah, fill in the blanks about Jasmine <laughs> Strong because it's a cool, it's a cool little drawing. So what, what, what are the plans for Jasmine Strong? Well, um, I think what's super, what's, what's exciting about it is I know, um, at my level of involvement, um, in that it's, it has been to sort of showcase and help write the script for that that little um, film, um, but I also had a great opportunity to test it with um, the kids that I work with, and it was really amazing to hear their feedback and what they resonated with, and what they didn't, um, and what what uh, Freedom Forward has done is they put this image of Jasmine, um, you know, all over the city, um, and they but they didn't sort of say anything about this this image of this young girl who looks really she's in this powerful stance and they kind of collected information about what does she mean to you or what does she um uh, and i think they had collected a number of responses where people would see the image and they'd say i think this means you know this is a a sign for the next president or this is a really empowering image of a girl or this is who i want to become um and so on and so forth and when they unveiled it i mean she is the face of a young person who has agency um and uh, when we think about commercial sexual exploitation of youth, um, we know that I think it's um, studies show that 55% of youth uh, who've, who are survivors report meeting their trafficker online mm. um, and 75% report being sold online. And so Freedom Forward wanted to take this platform, the technology essentially, and um, do something different with it um, and put it in the hands of young people. So there's a lot of opportunities for young people to interface with this media campaign um, to get resources, to find out about uh, the the issues, to find out how they can be allies, and so on and so forth. Um, So it's a really exciting way to bring youth into the conversation. Yeah, that's, that's great because I feel like it's something that maybe isn't talked about every day. Um, again, kind of like sexual education or pornography. You know, I think a lot of times uh, parents and adults, they, they want their children to be safe, but they don't necessarily know how to give them the tools to make sure that they are or yeah. to follow up with those, um, you know, conversations or, or um, establish a relationship with their, with their child um, that allows them to really be transparent about who they're speaking with, communicating with online. Um, especially because, you know, I mean, if, if, if you were, you and I could understand if we had had the ton of technology when we were kids, oh my gosh, like, I mean, I, I, I didn't have that. So I can only imagine, you know, the, the types of, of branches that form for connecting with people who, you know, people who you don't know, the things that can be said and shown and seen. Um, and then, um, you know, if, if you don't, actually have those conversations um, with your parents about, you know, predators, people who are out there who are, you know, they're either trying to take advantage of you or harm you in some way, and how to actually know, kind of be able to tell the difference between someone who might just be wanting to talk to you and someone who might actually be trying to commit a very serious crime and take advantage of you and exploit you um, on, on, a, on a very you know terrifying type of level. Um, so I like that Jasmine Strong is there 
like you said, so people can tie into it and maybe be an advocate. Maybe you're worried about your friend um, or you're worried about some people in your neighborhood um, who don't sit, don't seem right. Uh, something, something's up, you know, um, and, and, and if people can, uh, you know, young people can step in and show support or share their communication. Um, I think that's, that's a great way to um, engage everyone. So how can people tie in with Freedom Forward and with the Jasmine Strong? Um, well, they can go to uh, the website, um, www.freedomforward.com. Um, and they can, and what's great about that website is that it gives parents um, information, it gives educators information, it gives allies information, and young people uh, a ton of info and ways to get involved in the campaign. Um, which I think is is great. And another just small piece about the campaign that I think is really important to point out is that oftentimes when kids are, or when we in the US are thinking about sex trafficking, we tend to have this image of somebody in chains or somebody, you know, sort of looking um, like a hapless victim. And one of the things that this campaign really tries to do is, is change the narrative by changing the image, by having this image of a resilient young person. Um, and that and so many of the people who've contributed to the thinking behind this campaign are themselves survivors and mm-hmm. who've said, we want to be represented differently. Um, and we want to have a say in how our stories are represented. So I think that's really important as well. But there's a wealth of information um, and resources on that website. And I encourage everybody to to take a look. Beautiful. Um, so we're, we've, we've been covering a lot of ground here. Mm-hmm. I just want to check in and let people know you are listening to Women's Magazine here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. I'm here with my guest, Natasha Singh, um, who is a writer and a sexual ethics consultant, um, working with many different organizations, helping to uh, support and, and heal and um kind of create a a better future really so another organization that you're a part of um is asha rising so uh we've been talking a lot about kind of domestic things but asha rising is an organization that helps women in calcutta india Mm -hmm. who have aged out of the sex industry Mm -hmm. um so what um what brought this particular issue to light for you and let's talk about what asha rising provides for these women Sure. Um, I um, well, what what this space is is uh, we now um, provide permanent housing for women who've aged out of the sex trade, and generally the women who are in our um, in this space were also uh, survivors of trafficking, um, but most of them are you know sixty and above, um, and we provide literacy classes, um, yoga classes, physical therapy, medical checkups, uh, all kinds of art therapy. We do trauma counseling. Um, and those are just some of the things that we do. Uh, but the reason I suppose I never planned to <laughs> to be involved in this this issue, I actually had gone to India uh, post Delhi gang rape um, in mm. 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an Indian woman, I was so horrified by that gang rape, and I was electrified, however, by what I thought was a revolution happening in India. And so I traveled to India um, to meet with you know other activists on the ground who were doing work to end violence against women. And somehow that trip had me um, going visiting re- different red light areas to meet uh, to meet women, to meet people who were um, uh, involved in looking at these issues. Um, and then I had a chance to to talk to a lot of 
other people involved, whether that was survivors, whether that were sex workers, uh, brothel keepers, police, and so on. Um, and at some point on that trip, I met this woman who was based in Calcutta who said, you know, Natasha, I've lived in this community for 20 years, and I am devastated because the women that I call Ma um, or Auntie who live on the roadside I become connected to them. They become like mothers, and then the next day I'll see them, and they're lying on the roadside with their mouths open, mm. dead, and flies are coming out of their mouths. And she said, you know, this is so, um, that women, I mean, she was so horrified and traumatized by that. Um, and so she said, I just wish there was something in this community um, where elderly women could go and could live in peace and when that time comes to die in peace. Um, and so that just sort of stayed with me and I continued traveling. And at some point during my trip, I was doing some research on a particular community where there was a sexual exploitation of a minor girl that implicated police and government. Um, mm. And I ended up, um, that research ended up getting me into trouble with the police who found me and um, interrogated me and then deported me from India where most of my family lives. Um, and then they went and launched a media campaign um, accusing me of being a terrorist and a Pakistani spy. Wow. And I was so, so upset and so um, outraged and I think that when I came back, um, all I could think about, I mean, at first I thought, oh my goodness, how dare they, they my mobility, right. and freedom of movement has been taken from me. Yeah. Um, never mind, you know, the, the ways in which they were behaving. I mean, that's a whole other, <laughs> whole other thing. But I would say that um, after some time, I just thought, well, I still have all of my privileges. And if that could happen to me with all of my privileges, um, what is happening for and to the most vulnerable people? Um, and that made me think again of my friend Priya's um, desire to create the space. And so I started reaching out to her and I think using my principled outrage and my core ethics and values which have to do with liberation and justice and really channeling whatever I felt into creating something that could really be a value to a community. Um, and it has been because we've had so many people um, stay in our space. Um, we just moved to a three-story building where women can now you know, grow chili peppers and vegetables mm. and stuff on the rooftop. Um, and we started in a very small two-room, you know, kind of a space with one bathroom for tons of residents in a building across from a brothel. Um, and where we started, um, to us, was very deliberate because we wanted the community and we wanted the women who were in the brothel across the way to also know that um, they were valuable, not only because they could sexually service people, um, or because they were young, or because they were women, but because women are inherently valuable at every stage of life. Um, and so that uh, mission and that sort of um, energy, if you will, I think that is in the space is a living dynamic force, um, and it's doing some good in that community. That's fantastic. So Asha Rising. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, I, I've I've been to India as well. Okay. And so. Um, you know, as a as an American going to India, and uh, I mean, you have family there, your family ties there. Uh, it's certainly, but if you didn't grow up there and you go there, uh, you realized it's it's kind of metaphorically and literally the other side of the world, yeah. and it's uh, it's 
it's so vast. I mean, it's such a huge country and every, you know, every coast and every corner has its own uh, feeling to it. But uh, it's hard to describe kind of the feeling of being in that place. Um, but, uh, you know, driving through Calcutta and you see people or even any, almost any, any city in, in India, um, whether it's uh, Varanasi or um, Chennai or uh, I think I forget if they call it Madras or Chennai so everyone every city has two names um, you know, but um, but to see the the people who are just living on the street and um, and completely you know impoverished and, and we I mean we see poverty in our country as well and um, it's always it doesn't matter where you are in the world to see people who are destitute and living on the street and knowing that they have value there they have families somewhere um, they came from somewhere we don't know their stories uh, but um, you know that, that when people become uh, discarded in a way it's really a loss to everyone Absolutely. Um, and a you know and a, and a and a horrendous reality um for for them themselves so um i think that i, I really appreciate this 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 niche of uh, for asha rising because these women who as you said many of whom probably most of whom were trafficked at young ages grew up as in the sex trade didn't have families um, and so they don't have the social safety network right. that would in That's India right. probably be taking care of them yeah. usually you'd live with your child yeah mm -hmm. So um, thank you so much, Natasha Singh. I, I really, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you. And Likewise. I, you know, I, I, if you're out there listening, I'm sure that you uh, feel some of Natasha's like tremendously warm energy, but I, I get, I'm lucky I get to be in the same room right now <laughs> and, and feel it and just transmit it to you out there. Um, if you're listening uh, today um, or any other day, um, the show is on mutinyradio.fm. And so you can check it out in the podcast archive. Um, mutinyradio.fm and the show is called Women's Magazine and today is February 8th, 2019. So um, that's how folks can uh, listen or share this, uh, spread the word and um, Natasha, is there, are there any um, like uh, any contact information for you or um, what, uh, places do you want to send people or any events coming up that you want to announce? Oh, thank you for giving me that opportunity. To, yes. Um, <laughs> um, if, um, well, we have for Center for Domestic Peace, we have um, our fundraiser um, in May and we have the amazing Rebecca Traster who will be coming to speak who um, wrote, I think, Good and Mad and she talks about women's rage and the utility of women's rage. Um, and so I hope people check out our website and come and support us so that we can do the life-saving work that we do on the ground um, and that's in May and you can just check out uh, centerfordomesticpeace.com um, if people want to check out Freedom Forward that's www.freedomforward.com um, and if people want to engage in conversations about how to talk to parents about sexual teaching kids sexual ethics or want um, work done in their schools I am always happy um, and delighted to be part of community efforts so people can contact me at um, my website at www www.sexlited.com. Uh, nice. S-E-X-L-I-T-E-D. Sex Lit Ed. Um, yeah. I, if, if I worked at a school, I would be calling you. <laughs> <laughs> if I had kids, I would be calling you too. Um, so I really, really appreciate uh, your work and for coming in to 
Mutiny Radio today and just know that you're always welcome and to reach out anytime or, you know, happy to to host other other folks that you know um, who are also doing great work um, especially on behalf of women here on women's magazine but of course anybody in our community that we can help out um, mutiny radio is happy to be here for you thank you so much absolutely well folks it is 255 on my clock here so I'm going to wrap up and say thank you for listening to women's magazine this afternoon here and uh, remember just when your aspirations seem outrageous like I'm going to help these um, aged out sex workers in India to have a supportive home, or I'm going to teach parents and children how to talk to each other about porn. Wow. You know what? Inspiration is contagious. So peace and thank you and stay tuned.